right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Wicked Podcast, hosted by Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis. This week, we're going to be talking about femicide as we approach December 6th, which is the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. Uh, and today, I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Myrna Dawson. Uh, and I'll turn it over to Myrna to introduce herself and why she is connected to the work around femicide. Hello, Jensen. Thank you very much. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Myrna Dawson and I'm a professor at the University of Guelph. I also direct the Center for the Study of Social and Legal Responses to Violence. And one of our projects um, we recently launched in 2017 is the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability. So I began work on femicide as a graduate student actually in the 1990s. And I always like to say that because some of the things that we actually do in our graduate years have a, a real implication for how we move forward. And so I, I worked on a project in the 1990s as a volunteer graduate student called Woman Killing Intimate Femicide, Femicide in Ontario. And this particular project actually originated from uh, a grassroots feminist initiative called Women We Honor Action Committee. And it was a group of eight women who got together after experiencing the death of a woman in their um, care. And they were trying to work through their feelings about that. And so they decided they would set themselves the task of learning more about women killed in the context of, of intimate partner relationships. And so they did a two-part study, which I was involved in at that time called Women Killing, and they focused on the period of time from 74 to um, 1994. And so they showed, like everyone does, that many women are killed in the context of intimate partner relationships. But at the same time, as many of us know, in 1989, which is the year that they formed, we also experienced um, what would most commonly be referred to as the Montreal Massacre, in which a lone male entered Lakota Polytechnique in, at the University of Montreal and killed 14 women. So we know that women are not just killed in the context of intimate relationships, that they're killed outside the context of intimacy as well. So from that early research experience, I ended up carrying that project forward and expanding it to the Geography of Justice Initiative, um, which rolled out the project from focusing on Ontario specifically to looking at how society responds to these cases, primarily through the courts in that project, but focusing on femicide as both a private killing and a public killing. And so while I was expanding that nationally, um, the United Nations um, Special Rapporteur for Violence Against Women and Girls started to call for countries to establish femicide watches or observatories. And so I, I felt at that time, because of my research in Ontario and Canada, and some of the work that we've been doing that this was the perfect time to launch the Femicide Observatory. So that's how we sort of went from the 1990s to 2017 with the launch of the observatory. No, it's so great to hear. And thank you so much for sharing that. We're really grateful to have you be part of this podcast to share in your expertise and love that you touched upon, you know, how so many of these movements often start locally and grassroots and passionate individuals and how yes. that expands, you know, locally, provincially, nationally, internationally, and the importance of continuing to grow this work. Um, and so I'm wondering with, um, you know, for those that, as you've mentioned, the Femicide Observatory, and uh, for those who might not know, who might be listening, could you explain more as to what is femicide? When we hear that term, what are we talking about? Okay. So, so this is something that I, I find that I've really grappled with a lot in the last few years is trying to explain to different audiences what femicide is. So broadly speaking, femicide refers to the killing of a woman or girl because, and I put the emphasis here on because, of their sex or gender. And so that's the broad, the broad definition. And it's considered to be one of the most extreme forms of gender-based violence or violence against women and girls. 
The term originated from the late South African feminist activist and scholar, Diana Russell. She just recently passed away, which was quite a loss to the feminist community. But she first used the term in the mid 1970s at an international tribunal looking at violence against women. And at that time, herself, along with some of the colleagues that she worked with, Jill Radford and Roberta Harms, were actually wanting to see that if they used a term to describe the killings of women and girls, that it would help rally activists to begin the fight to protect women. And so it was a political term, but it was also a term that described a phenomenon that is very distinct, and we'll talk about how that is. And before I sort of move on to the definitional parameters, one of the most recent sort of evolutions of the term has occurred in Latin America, where they, they now call it um, in Spanish feminicidio, but the, the English translation is feminicide. And so the two terms femicide and feminicide are used um, almost interchangeably, but the Latin American emphasis on feminicide really draws attention to how states or governments help to facilitate or condone killings of women and girls through their lack of action or inadequate responses. So from the mid 1970s to now, the definitional parameters of femicide has really changed quite a bit over time. And it often depends on who's talking about it, what discipline they're coming from, um, what world region they're coming from, and, and often sort of what it is that they actually want to focus on. But I think regardless of the cultural or regional context, there's a, there's a firm belief that it really is all forms of sexist killings. And here I, I sort of say, well, what is sexist killing? It's, it's what I call sex or gender related motives or indicators. And this is what I think is the real key to femicide because the, the use of the term femicide because there's a lot of um, individuals who use femicide to refer to all killings of, of women and girls, so all female victim homicides. Um, but some want to narrow it more closely to, this, to those that are really targeting um, women because of their sex or gender. And what this means is that the perpetrator, um, the individual who killed um, the woman or girl had misogynistic attitudes. So, so attitudes that were underpinned by hatred of women, or it was facilitated by a community or societal level acceptance um, for violence against women and girls. And I think you know, this is why we see most of the definitions will focus on male perpetrators, but there are some who include femicide um, that involves female perpetrators as well. And so I think, you know, one of the ways to think about how femicide is distinct from other homicides, and here I'll say that femicide is a subset of homicide, it's not mutually exclusive, is that women are treated as possessions or objects, and, and those possessions or objects can be discarded at any point in time and in any manner, and that sort of signifies um, the the killing of women as a femicide. And we can get into some discussions about some examples on that too, if you would like to. Yeah, I think some examples might be helpful for folks to sort of contextualize, you know, what might differentiate a femicide from, you know, women being murdered in what might be seen as other contexts. Okay. So I think one of the, so there's there's really two types of femicides that, that come up most often. There's intimate femicide or intimate partner femicide, and then there's non-intimate femicide. So women who are killed by male partners or family members compared to women who are killed outside the context of their intimate relationships. And sometimes this is referred to as sexual femicide, but we know that sexual, sexual violence can also be involved in intimate partner femicides as well. So... I think when we think about um, some of the examples, and here I think one of the things to emphasize is that a lot of the examples we're going to talk about are very distinct because they don't occur in the killings of men and boys, 
regardless of the sex of the perpetrator. So regardless of whether men are killed by um, other men or other women, that these characteristics are often not there. So some of the things would be um, prior violence in a relationship. So here I want to underscore that women are most often um, killed in the context of their relationships and most often by male partners. So some of the things that will distinguish them are often linked to intimate partner relationships. And so prior violence is one of those. So the, the perpetrator may have been previously violent to the, to the woman or girl that he killed or um, towards previous female partners. So a series of um, violence against women in the individual's life. Could be things like coercive controlling behaviors, which is a term we've heard a lot frequently because there's some movement to try to get course of control legislation um, in the criminal code in Canada, as there has been in other countries. And so this is things like repeatedly calling um, a woman um, misogynistic names, whether it be bitch or cow, um, repeatedly asking where they are when they're um, out, and so trying to monitor their activities when they're outside the home, controlling their social media, so having access to their Facebook or Twitter accounts and, and monitoring what they're posting, um, controlling the finances, and we've heard a lot about financial abuse as well. So those are the sort of courses controlling behaviors that often occur before a woman is killed in this context. Separation or the decision to leave a partner, because sometimes they might make that decision and they don't actually get the chance to physically leave, is also quite a, quite a correlate um, that distinguishes femicide from other types of homicides. The refusal to establish a relationship. So a man might um, set his sight, so to speak, on a woman that he is interested in and he may pursue her um, and she rejects his approach, whether, you know, saying that, that she's not interested or what have you, that could be um, an indicator of the killing because he responds as if that wasn't her choice. Um, and there, there's so many others, I think excessive violence in the relationship, you know, excessive violence during the act. So overkill is a term we hear quite frequently in the context of femicide. And that is there's so much um, violence perpetrated on the woman either during or after death that this often isn't the case with many other types of homicides. So 60 or 70 stab wounds or, you know, the mutilation of a woman. Um, after her death or leaving her in a way that violates her sexually so that when she's discovered her body is portrayed in a particular way. So these are all things that we never find in the context of, or very rarely find, one should say never, very rarely find in the context of men, men homicide victims. Mm -hmm. So really looking at, you know, not only the demographic factors of, of gender being uh, at play there for femicides, but also looking at, you know, the history of abuse. And I really appreciate that you've touched upon um, the many different forms that abuse can take. You know, it's not just physical. You've talked about emotional, that coercive and controlling element there. Um, and also the dangers when it comes to leaving. Um, I believe it's, you know, women are at the highest risk of violence when they're attempting to leave and that the, the risk mm -hmm. of that violence being fatal is higher as well. So, you know, uh, combating those types of comments of, well, why don't they just leave that relationship? Looking at, you know, how unsafe it is to do so and that just if, if the relationship ends doesn't mean that there's an end to the violence as well. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think, you know, your comments are really important in bringing it back to sort of the, the difficulties we have in defining femicide, because some of those things that you've talked about are actually systemic issues as well. So there's so individuals will argue that one of the reasons we need to call all killings of women and girls femicide is because we live in a patriarchal society which um, subordinates women and girls 
in comparison to men and boys and oppresses them in, in many different ways. And, and if we take an intersectional lens to the, those oppressions, there's inequalities such as race and ability that intersect with sex and gender. So it's so different groups of women and girls are impacted differently. And so I think there's real arguments for saying, well, you know what, sometimes all killings of women and girls do feel like it's femicide because if they're trying to leave and there's no supports in society that will help her leave safely, then isn't that a femicide because the patriarchal social structure has, has put those restrictions on that individual woman. And so I think that's what's really hard. And one of the one of the ways we've sought to combat it and some of the work that we do in the Femicide Observatory is we do count all women and girls. And so if you look at some of our reports, we say all women and girls killed by violence. And then we, we seek to differentiate those ones that are um, clearly femicide, those ones that maybe are not femicide, which might involve clear indicators of mental illness that maybe weren't rooted in misogynistic attitudes. Um, and then there's the ones that kind of sit on the cusp, and those are the ones that are really important to talk about in terms of, you know, how do we deal with these types of scenarios when we're trying to categorize femicides? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important. And I know you, you briefly touched upon how femicide has, has differential impacts on different women. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to how different groups of women of different identities and experiences might have a higher likelihood of experiencing femicide. And what are some of those demographic and social factors that contribute to that? Yes, no problem. So I think one of the things that we've noticed, and so I talk a lot about the Canadian situation, but I will say here that our situation is very reflective of the situation globally. And I think that's what's quite telling about femicide is that a lot of the characteristics and the correlates and, and some of the higher risk demographic groups are actually so consistent globally that I think it really provides that evidence base that these are, are so distinct and need to be treated in that way for effective prevention. So the, one of the risk factors or one of the demographic groups I've already talked about is intimacy. And so I won't go, I won't go into that anymore, except to say that most women are killed in the context of, of their intimate relationships, although this varies across world regions where armed conflict may um, change that distribution. When it comes to characteristics, I think it, like indigenous indigeneity has been one that's really come up in the Canadian context. And we've showed this um, in our early work from the mid 1990s on the, on the Women We Are Action Committee, in the context of intimate relationships, we've showed this, we've seen the Stolen Sisters report and the subsequent reports after that that have shown that indigenous women and girls are at higher risk and not just in the context of intimate relationships, but also in the context of acquaintance and stranger killings. And then we've seen this identified in the, uh, the most recent inquiry report that came out in 2019. And, you know, the consistent over time, and we're talking about decades of documenting the higher risk of Indigenous women and girls in particular, really makes you concerned about the lack of progress that we've made and that that doesn't seem to have changed at all. And so we really have to start thinking about that. One of the things we've also sort of determined when we're doing this work in the Canadian context is that there's other racialized groups that we can't seem to get good data on. And that's within our work, but it's also within official government statistics. And one of those groups is black women. So there's a lot of work now being done in the US on black femicide. We're trying to focus on that issue in this context, but the data is really problematic. Um, so I should backtrack here and say, we rely on, on media files and court documents for our data, which research has shown is sometimes as reliable or more reliable than official data, which is actually quite interesting. And it's been identified as one of the most feasible ways to look at femicide globally. There's uh, research groups that have come together to see how we might do that. 
But even when I say that, we talk about race data, homicide statistics, for example, uh, the Homicide Survey in Canada, it has very poor quality data when it comes to race and ethnicity. And, I, and they know that as well, because there's been some movement recently to move forward in trying to have consultations about how do we improve this. So it's pretty likely that Black femicide is that Black women and girls are at higher risk, but it's difficult to document with the data that we have. South Asian women is another group, immigrant, immigrant and refugee women. Those are groups that we would expect that would have higher risk, but the data is so problematic, it's difficult to, um, to say concretely, although um, people are pretty confident that that's the case. Moving beyond race and ethnicity, I think age is, is a factor that's, that's become quite important. We know that younger women have often been at risk, but we have an older population, an increasingly older population. And so we've noticed that older women, 65 years and older, have become one of the largest groups of victims in the Canadian context, which is problematic. So age is also a risk factor. And I guess the other I would mention, there's a number and we covered different ones in our report and, we, and I can expand on them if you want me to, but I guess the other one I would mention here would be rurality, so non-urban spaces. And so we know that um, in Canada, um, I'm trying to remember exactly the proportion of individuals that live in rural regions, but rural, rural um, femicides or the killing of women and girls in rural contexts is far disproportionate to their actual representation in the population. Some of those factors, contributors have to do with access to services, transportation, housing, employment, etc. So there's lots of contributors that um, lead to why women living in rural areas are at higher risk and, and firearms, which is, a, is quite a contentious issue. So we got the rural gun, gun culture as well. So those are some of the ones that we've identified, some of the most clear ones. And there's other ones that are sort of emerging that we're keeping some attention to. I so appreciate you taking the time to talk about, you know, how this issue is so intersectional and how, uh, as I said, you know, gender and, and sex is, is one factor to look at when we talk about femicide, but looking at the ways in which in a patriarchal and a racist society, the devaluation of, you know, certain women's bodies and identities based on who they are and where they come from is a very layered issue when it comes to that layers of marginalization, oppression, and how you've spoken about it from so many different angles and particularly at the end about rurality. Um, you know, we at Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis have our rural women's support program in an effort to address, you know, the gaps that we see in supports often being so urban centric. And I think that's something that we've noticed as well with the pandemic is uh, for women living in rural areas uh, who are already facing uh, issues with transportation and so many barriers, now not having maybe say internet access to access yes. an online appointment or safely be able to make a crisis call has definitely exacerbated, I think, a lot of, of those issues that we've seen. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, the data is really early now um, because we're sort of in the midst of it and, and we're still seeing trends and patterns, but I think we're going to see that the rural, that, that rural living is going to be increasingly um, a factor that exacerbates their risk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you spoke a little bit uh, to the ways in which the observatory collects data to track femicides uh, and mentioning that you often turn to uh, media reporting to look at uh, examples of femicide. And I'm wondering if you could speak more about how that data is collected. What are some challenges with that? And even are you finding in the media that they're reporting these incidences as femicide or what language is being used to describe those? Okay, so... 
So with respect to the data collection, so I'll talk about that first, and then I'll come back to the sort of the use of the term femicide, because that's an interesting question. There's been some, some movement on that. So with respect to the, so I want to back, go back to some of the early work that we did around femicide in Ontario. We, we actually very much triangulated the data sources that we used in that research. So we drew from coroner's records, police records, court records, crown attorney records, and media files. And so that early work was very much um, grounded in multiple sources of information. With respect to the femicide observatory itself, we rely on publicly accessible information, which is tends to be the pattern of most femicide watches and observatories run by civil society organizations or universities. Um, so that's media coverage, which I've mentioned that there's, because there's such a reliant, reliance on it now, and it's become more publicly available with digital archives and stuff, that there's research that has shown that it's quite, quite accurate. And, and then we also re, um, rely on court documents. And so that is if the case has gone through the criminal justice system, there's often sentencing um, appeal information and stuff like that, which is not um, available if the perpetrator commits suicide afterwards or dies by suicide afterwards. So that's a problem, I'll come back to that. So those are the two key sources of information that we use. So one of the things that we do do just to make sure that we're getting as many cases as we can, and we talked about this in our last report, is we compare our numbers to what comes out in StatsCan. Now we do sort of real count in the year that it's happening. There's usually about a delay of a year for when StatsCan numbers come out. So when their numbers come out, we look to see if we have um, close to the same numbers. And we did identify that for the most part across the country, we were coming up with similar numbers, except for in the province of Quebec. And that could be an English language, um, English French language issue, something that we're looking into now. So we're quite confident that we're tracking all the deaths or close to all the deaths of women, women and girls. But when it comes to the completeness of the information, we do have different types of concerns based on that, not just because maybe of the data sources, but just because of the whole sort of process around homicides and how they're recorded. So the first thing that we're worried about is completeness of data. So we can get, we can document that a woman or a girl has been killed, but sometimes if we want to determine if there was a sex or gender-based motive, it's really difficult to do that because of the sparse information that might be included in particular cases. And here, this is really problematic in murder-suicides because for some reason, and it might make sense, but it appears that in murder-suicides, because there's no criminal proceedings that follow, there's less detailed investigations because there isn't that need to sort of produce all this evidence for court. And so the details around uh, murder suicides or intimate femicide suicides, which are quite significant um, in numbers, the, the information is, is less. The other issue comes from official versus non-official designations of homicide. So we track anything that comes up in the, in the media from suspicious all the way through to whether or not it's actually been officially claimed as a, as a homicide. Sometimes those suspicious deaths which will remain in our database, but don't get counted um, in most cases, have been identified from family and friends that it was definitely a homicide. And so then we have to make the decision, is this going to be counted as a homicide or is it not? And in some cases, we have decided to count it as a homicide because the, the, um, the contributions from the family and friends has, has, has convinced us that the only thing that's preventing it from being counted as a homicide is some sort of legal obstacle. And so that's another issue that comes up. I think that we also have something called a hierarchy of victims. And this goes back to um, what we were talking about, about intersectionality and, and some of the characteristics that actually makes some victims more unworthy 
than other victims and sometimes means they're discounted in death, but they've been discounted in life. And so what happens is you have less information on those victims. And so here I'm talking about women who are working um, sex workers. I'm talking about uh, poor women. I'm talking about immigrants and refugees. So some of these women that are discounted by larger society um, and seen as not as worthy of protection as other women who might be white women, women from affluent neighborhoods, um, professional women. So you get more data for certain types of victims than you do for other victims. And that's problematic too, because you know, we try to collect a lot of information um, when you can only get that for some victims, that, that's a, a real problem. And here I want to sort of, I want to say that that's just not our problem. I've been doing a lot of writing recently around the limitations of StatsCan's homicide survey when it comes to including variables that actually will help us understand femicides because it's very limited. And so it, the problem is really across the board and Canada is not unique in, in the challenges it faces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, th I think that's really interesting and in looking at the reporting of how certain cases are reported differently, you know, the, the Gabby Petito case in the States, you know, got a high level of media attention and lots of folks were critiquing, um, not to say that attention wasn't deserved or that case wasn't important, but, you know, where is the media coverage when it comes to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls? Um, and the factors that you mentioned, you know, whether that be sex work, poverty, you know, people who use substances, that's then seen as the cause of death, you know, people living quote unquote risky lifestyles um, and how that contributes to the framing of, you know, is it femicide, is it not? I think that's really interesting to, to take note of as well. Yeah, the Gabby Petito case was really one that shone a light on, on, the, on how we treat victims so differently. I mean, anyone who's done any work around media knows that there is that, but I think it was really starkly demonstrated by that case. And, you know, there was another case, Sarah Everward, that was in the UK who was killed by the police officer um, who was recently convicted. That was another case where this individual was covered a lot, not just, I think, because it was a white woman, but because she was killed in, in publicly as opposed to privately. So there's another sort of hierarchy of victims. Sometimes private women who are killed in the home are often not covered as much as someone, a woman who's killed publicly depending on the, on the woman who's been killed publicly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm wondering if we could just circle back to how you're finding that the media is, are they utilizing the language of femicide in these reports? Have you seen um, an increase in that? I know you mentioned sort of that it tends to be seen as more of a like political term to spark action and activism, but are you finding this language being utilized by the criminal justice system, by the media, where are we seeing that term being used outside of maybe the work that you and I are doing? So the short answer is we don't see it being used a lot, but I'll, I'll expand on that. So femicide, I think, is a term that hasn't been used a lot in the North American context. And here I want to compare it to the Latin American context where it's used quite frequently. And in 16 of 20 Latin American countries, it's actually enshrined in law or legislation. So they very much, because of grassroots activists, I think in many cases, have really started to pick up the word. It's really only been in the last few years in the North American context that I will say that we're starting to see a bit of an uptake of the term femicide. And here I'll say that 30 years ago when the Montreal massacre happened, we saw the term being used some at that time, but then it kind of faded off again back into obscurity until in 2019, they, they labeled it a anti-feminist attack, but still didn't call it a mass femicide, which I actually, thought was so strange because I, I don't think I could find a more clear example of misogyny 
that was a precursor to women being killed in the Montreal massacre. So, so it has there's there's a resistance to picking up picking it up. But I remember when I when we started the Femicide Observatory, I was talking to one reporter and and she said, you know, I was talking to my colleagues this morning about the inter interview that I was going to do with you and. None of us have ever heard of the term femicide. And I said, I'm not surprised. Um, and I wouldn't have expected that you would have used the term. And this was in 2017. And I said, that's because there's, in, a, in many cases, it's not used in, in academic environments sometimes to look at specific issues. And here I want to draw attention to some of the words like domestic homicide or intimate partner homicide that are more often used, but I see them as gender neutral terms that don't capture the sex or gender specific nature of the killings. We've seen them um, sometimes referred to just as homicides, which take, which, you know, totally removes it from that. So we've been really pushing, you know, to call it femicide and really trying to educate around, well, what do we need? And we use hashtag call it femicide in a lot of our work. And we notice little bits of change. So we've heard the deputy prime minister, Christina, Christina Freeland, um, use it a couple of times in some of her public um, addresses and public speeches, which we found quite um, encouraging although no other federal leader has ever used it. Um, so the fact that one female leader has used it is encouraging, but we'd like to see it used more broadly. Um, the other interesting sort of trend is that Quebec is using it quite frequently, both in media and some of its provincial leaders have used the term femicide, but no other media in other parts of the country have used it. So for some reason, Quebec has picked it up. And here I would argue that it's probably because in France, um, there's quite an activist movement around femicide or what they sometimes more often use there as feminicide. And so it could be that the, that it was used there some already and now it's just becoming more, more used. But it's interesting, you'll see like CTV or Global News in Montreal use femicide, but you'll see CTV News or Global in Ontario not use it. So there's no sort of consistency across it. But I really do think that it's really important for us to start using that term because it really identifies that there are distinct factors to these killings, and we haven't seen a lot of movement on reducing them in recent years. So we really need to start to understand why they're distinct and how we're failing in terms of some of our prevention initiatives and, and approaches. I think it's really interesting to hear about how the labeling is, is so different province to province, nationally, internationally, and uh, getting folks thinking about those different examples. And I know the observatory collects data provincially province to province on femicide. Uh, I'm wondering if you've seen uh, any differences in provincial trends. Are there certain provinces where we're seeing more femicides than others? How are we seeing that being tracked kind of province to province? Yeah, we have, we have seen differences. I mean, generally speaking, um, homicides, if we talk about homicides more generally, the rates tend to be higher in certain parts of the country too. And sometimes the femicide patterns will replicate that as well. So the territory sometimes have higher rates. I was looking at one, some of our most recent data and we did note that Saskatchewan had high rates um, in some of our recent reports and so did Nunavut as well. But it's so hard sometimes to look at this because we're looking at rates and, and that could mean that one or two cases in, in, pop, in, in areas that have very small populations like none of it um, makes their rate look significantly high, but the raw number of cases is actually quite small. But if we are gonna compare per capita, which adjusts, adjusts for population, then yes, sometimes the prairies and the territories end up being, having higher rates. Ontario, British Columbia, and Quebec often are, are lower than the national average, even though they contribute probably in raw numbers, the higher 
numbers of cases of women and girls killed. So there is variation, um, but, but little things can affect it. So we had the, the mass killings in Nova Scotia in 2020. And so that made Nova Scotia look um, very distinct in, in our 2020 report because of that. And, and we talk a lot in the report about, about that, you know, inflating the rates, but you still have to count those deaths because they were deaths of individual, individual women. So, so I expect Nova Scotia will not have that higher rate in 2021. But I think, you know, you know the prairies, sometimes Manitoba has appeared um, higher um, than some of the other prairies. I think homicide rates fluctuate, so we see some variation, but the, the prairies and the territories have often had some of the highest rates. And overall, would you say, has the observatory been seeing femicides increasing, decreasing, staying relatively stable, um, talking on, a, I guess, a national standpoint? Well, we, we have been trying to look at that. So one of the things, um, you know, we've been asked about a lot is with respect to COVID because of, you know, we started in 17. So the first, the first year that we actually had numbers for the country was in 2018. So 2018 and 19 were pre-COVID. And then 2020, we saw COVID hit in 2021. And so we, we have taken a look and because these cases start out as suspicious and there's investigations, sometimes the numbers will change from year to year. So what we did was we looked at the first six months of, of 19, 2019, pre-COVID, the first six months of 2020, when COVID began, and then the first six months of 2021, which is the year we're in now and we're still in COVID, unfortunately. So in, 19, in 2019, the first six months, there was 60 women and girls killed. In the first six months of 2020, there was 78 women and girls killed. And in the first uh, six months of 2021, there was 92 women and girls killed. So that's 32 more women and girls in the space of three years. So I'm always cautious about saying that something is increasing because of something going on in society, because there's so many different factors that can contribute to it. But this is a pretty significant um, increase. And so I think it's something that we have to be quite concerned about in terms of how much longer COVID is going to happen and if it's going to still translate into increasing numbers. And I say that in the context of globally that other countries have shown this as well. So from 30, you know, from 60 to 92 in the space of three years, you know, that's a, that's a lot of extra women and girls being killed. And at least some of that, I'm sure, has to have something to do with, with the pandemic that we're going through. Mm -hmm. And the impacts of the pandemic, you know, even after vaccinations and lockdowns have been lifted, uh, the impacts of that on services, on individuals and that isolation will continue to last. So it's difficult. I, I hear what you're saying of capturing the pandemic as being something that was, say, one and a half years or two years long, we know that those those ripple effects will will be continuing for sure. Yes, yes, absolutely. And the other the other you know problem with with not wanting to overstate the impact of the pandemic, um, the COVID pandemic, is that it's sometimes translating into people using it as an excuse as to why something happened. Well, you know, women and children were were probably living in in this violent situation before the pandemic, and maybe it was the pandemic that turned it lethal, but it wasn't like violence wasn't necessarily in, in that context already. So, so trying to make sure that, that the pandemic doesn't become the excuse for violence against women and girls, as opposed to just another contributor that's exacerbating the situation. 
I'm wondering if you could speak to, you know, the, the amazing work that the, fem- the Femicide Observatory is doing and how that research that you're doing at an individual level and part of the observatory, how is that influencing or have you seen that influence um, public policy, public opinion when it comes to femicide? So how is this research being translated into that political advocacy piece? Well, you know, that's hard, you know, the Chinese proverb says change takes 100 years and um, I'm probably not going to be here to see the full change, but I think it it is, it's it's entering the public discussions. We do a lot of work around um, education and awareness on femicide on social media, for example, which is not just in in the Canadian context, but it's in the global context because social media and Twitter, for example, has no, no global, no geographic boundaries, but I think there are more discussions about femicide and we're seeing increasing um, coverage of crimes against women and girls that I don't think we would have seen in the past. And here I'm saying quality journalism, journalism that's trying to dig into some of the factors rather than just sort of, you know, calling us every time another woman or girl is killed and wanting to get our, our solutions, like we're holding them close to our chest and not telling anybody until some until another woman or girl is killed. So I think we're seeing more more quality journalism around um, femicide. We see the word used some more often on social media, sometimes by journalists, but not. But sometimes they're actually independent journalists and freelance journalists more so um, than journalists that are working with in- institutions. Um, so maybe that's because they have institutional constraints. But it's nice to see that that the language is coming through um, more often than it used to be. And I think we're seeing people actually inquire as to what is femicide. So there's this common belief that when we use the term femicide that we're arguing that women are killed more often than men. And and everyone knows that men are killed more often than women, primarily by other men, but their numbers are higher. So it's a real chance for us to sort of educate people around, okay, we're not saying women are killed more often, but we are saying that women are killed very distinctly and our prevention initiatives need to recognize that fact as do you know, public awareness and education and professional awareness and education. So, you know, would I say I'm overwhelmed with the changes that have happened so far? I would say no, but I'm, I'm, I'm always encouraged. I mean, when our deputy prime minister used it, I was encouraged because that was somebody, somebody who never would have used that language probably before this. And so I, I feel good about that. In Quebec, I never saw the term being used before we started pushing the sort of the call it femicide. And so if we in any way contributed to that change, I think that's great. It's hard to know for sure, but we take whatever encouragement where we can get it and, and hope that it's starting to resonate, at least in some, some jurisdictions. Yeah, absolutely. And that change is often thankless, often immeasurable, often, like you said, it doesn't happen overnight. So we have to take those little wins. And even, you know, if someone after listening to this podcast today has learned more about what femicide is and starts to utilize that in their language, it's really about opening up those conversations to the best of our ability uh, and having this terminology be entered into popular discourse and dialogue that might be for folks outside of the gender-based violence sector to, to pick this up as well. Exactly, exactly. And so I know within the work of the observatory um, and even within our work at Women in Crisis, we're not just looking at response, but also looking at prevention. Um, So I'm wondering, I know this is a loaded question because there's many things that we can do, but what are some ways uh, that you've seen through research or even your personal views of how can individuals take action to prevent femicide uh, and to help raise awareness? Yeah, it's always the big question, isn't it? I think, you know, there's there's two things, 
there's two real obstacles to prevention of femicide. I think one, one of those key obstacles is the attitudes and beliefs that many people in society still have about normal intimate partner relationships and a tolerance of an acceptance for violence. So, so one of the things I think, you know, a, a very first step that's so easy is self-education. And so that's about becoming aware of these stereotypes and assumptions that people hold and so that when you're in your small circle of, of friends or family, that you can talk about how there's problems with those assumptions and beliefs in a way that is not attacking because people get very defensive, but it's knowledgeable. And so, and so being able to actually speak about something that you've learned, taking the time to learn about yourself, I think is really important. So even when I started work on femicide, you know, years ago, people used to ask me what it was. And I really grappled with it because I had to, I had to sort of, self-educate and make sure I understood exactly what I was talking about before I could explain it to somebody else. So I think self-education is key. I think then, you know, we all have it in us to be many activists or advocates. And I think we take small steps in that regard. And that's that's with our small circle of, of um, peers, that's with our family, having those difficult discussions sometimes, safely challenging individuals who may say something that is, um, that has a lot of problematic assumptions and that would support sort of victim blaming in the context of violence against women and girls. And I say safely because sometimes it's not a safe space to challenge somebody depending on the context. Um, but one of the things I have found, and my students would laugh at this because I, I wasn't on social media before they got me onto social media, but I have found social media to be such a tool, such an effective tool. And I totally agree with everyone who says it's, it can be very toxic. So I use the mute button quite liberally. But I think there's really something to be said about education through social, through social media. And so I'm, I'm on Twitter quite a bit and I'll have individuals ask me, I don't understand what femicide is and their language sounds quite assertive and aggressive. And so I will respond to them and, and explain and I'll provide them some resources and we'll have some back and forth. And there's been like, a half a dozen situations where I, I know it's probably been a male that I've been conversing with, um, they thanked me at the end of it and said that they never thought about it like this. And those are six people that I never would have got otherwise. And so I feel like that's that's one way that we can do it. It really takes a, a bit of skill to prevent yourself from being attacked and, and that kind of stuff. So I think um, it's important to do it carefully and, and to understand your own limitations when it comes to um, being sensitive about how people respond. My, my first job in life was as a reporter. So I very early got a thick skin. And so I'm, I'm not very sensitive. I'm not, um, I don't take things too much to heart, although even then it still hurts sometimes. So, so that's another way. And I think, you know, public education is the key. I don't think we're going to get anywhere if we don't really focus on public education. So I think pushing your representatives, your, your provincial, municipal, um, federal representatives to put more effort into primary prevention. And that is, you know, campaigns that would talk about issues around violence against women and girls to deconstruct the stereotypes that are so problematic, like why doesn't she leave? And I don't see this being done to any great degree in Canada. Um, I see it being done in places like New Zealand or Australia or the UK where they really put together, we've had some good campaigns, but not in the last decade or so. So I think we really need to push that and the emphasis, I think, has to become towards men and boys. I think we've done almost as much as we can um, arming ourselves. And I, I use arm in the most broadest sense. I don't mean with guns. I mean with self-protective gear, 
we monitor, women and girls monitor our, our, our movements. And so I think it's about now teaching men and boys to be less defensive when we talk about being fearful and about some of the things that, that occur um, with male violence against women and girls and, and sort of you know, more emphasis on healthy relationships um, among younger generations. I think we really need to start to target the younger generations. I don't think any of the things I'm saying are new. I think people have said this. I think political will is what we're lacking. Um, and political will is really what we need right now to sort of turn the tide on this because COVID has really underscored that there's there's huge drop, huge um, a pendulum swinging backwards when it comes to women's uh, social location in society. And there's, there's a term called disaster patriarchy where there's a disaster and it affects women first. And we really see that happening. And I, and I think we need the political will to really address this so it doesn't push back all the progress that we've actually made. No, I think those tips are so important. And I find, you know, sometimes people with issues like this, with any social issue, folks often think, you know, this issue is too big to solve. What can I do about it? And how you've addressed the ways in which our everyday conversations, those small little things that we hear in our gut, we know that's not okay. How can we challenge that? And I also love the emphasis on how can we do that safely? Um, for anyone who's looking for resources on how to do that, um, looking up bystander intervention techniques can be very yes. helpful. Looking at de-escalation, um, looking at you know what can you do in, in your everyday lives and I think part of that that education is is like you said that political will and looking at this not only is everyone's collective responsibility to be part of that prevention and that solution but investing in it um, seeing it as a priority and I think to do so we have to work away from you know not normalizing that violence um, you know, living in a society where um, gender-based violence is so normalized that it becomes to be, you know, accepted and tolerated and just seen as this is part of the world that we live in. So I think even that first step of accepting that this doesn't have to be the way it is and we can do something about it is really important. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I, I, I've learned a lot from the Latin American context and, and they've made amazing strides, excuse me, <clears throat> made amazing strides when it comes to grassroots activism. And so I really think, you know, as a public, we have power to push for political will. I think sometimes when we're tired and there's a lot, lots to make us tired lately, I think we, we downplay the power that we have as, as a public. And I think we have to really push that forward. And I, I think it's interesting to note too that this is actually the 13th, uh, the 30th anniversary of the 16 days of activism and they've highlighted femicide as one of their theme categories to celebrate the 30th. And so this is really a time just for everybody to start to push forward, you know, with calling it femicide, with, you know, you know pushing against assumptions and, and challenging people on some of the things that they think around, they think they know around, around certain aspects of, of relationships or interactions between men and women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for those who haven't heard of the 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence before, uh, that starts on November 25th, which is the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, and goes through till December 10th, which is International Human Rights Day. Uh, and Women in Crisis um, has an exciting video campaign where we're highlighting 16 voices of activism against gender-based violence that will be releasing short videos uh, every day throughout the 16 days to highlight the work that's being done uh, locally and in the community to take action against gender-based violence. Um, Marna, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. I know I've learned a lot and I hope our listeners have as well. And before I let you go, I just wanted to see if there was any upcoming, you know, research projects or resources that you would like to highlight if people might be listening to this and looking for more. 
Well, we, so we, every year we do the hashtag remember me campaign, which during the 16 days of activism. So we were doing that again this year as well, in which we, we want to remember um, the, all the women and girls that have been killed by violence in Canada. So we'll be starting that on November 25th through December 10th. We'll also be releasing some preliminary numbers around, um, around femicide during the 16 days of activism. Um, but our, our full report usually comes out sometime early in, in the new year, so sometime in 2022. So there'll be lots of stuff happening on Twitter because we've, we've been in connection with a number of international and global agencies as well. So we're trying to sort of pull our resources around femicide. So there'll be lots going on on Twitter. So if people haven't been on Twitter, this is the time to sort of get your feet wet and get on and see all that you can learn about what's going on locally, nationally, and globally about violence against women and girls and femicide. So I think it's a really good time to sort of get out there and start to tweet and retweet. And would you mind sharing the uh, the account names that folks can look for on Twitter to, to give them a follow to make sure they're tuned in? Yeah, so, so one would be um, at Femicide Watch. Um, the other would be at can underscore femicide. And there's another one at CWGL, Center for Women's Global Leadership. Um, and I think they have one specific, they, they started the 16 days of activism. I think they have a specific has, um, account after, uh, related to that. But certainly if you um, are following us, we're retweeting a lot of stuff from different parts of the world. And, and we're also actually launching the Femicide Watch platform, which is a global platform. And we'll be launching that, a soft launch on the 25th of November and a hard launch on, the, on December 10th, actually. So there'll be some information flowing around on that too. So, and anyone is welcome to join. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate the time um, and passion that you've committed, not just to this work, but the time that you've spent chatting with us today. Uh, and for those who are looking for additional ways to engage, if you're in the Guelph Wellington region, uh, Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis is hosting our annual December 6th Femicide Vigil, uh, which is happening at 6.30 p.m. at Marianne's Park. Um, so thank you again, Myrna, for, for joining us to chat with us today about unpacking femicide, the ways in which we can recognize it, the ways in which we can take action to prevent it. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. I've enjoyed it.